So last week, we spent our time talking about the Christian rite of passage known as baptism. We talked about how baptism serves as this outward sign or symbol of the work that God has done in and through our lives, how it vividly portrays the cleansing of our sin through the person and work of Christ. That when we repent, or as we discussed last week, when we believe or entrust ourselves to Jesus, this inward and heavenly reality of our salvation as we walk into the waters of baptism is now proclaimed and tangibly demonstrated for the world to witness. We learned that Peter instructed those who recognize their sin, their participation in the murder of Jesus to respond to that sorrow and guilt by receiving God's forgiveness and immediately walking in obedience. But that's not the first time baptism shows up in the New Testament. In Matthew's gospel, before Jesus begins his ministry, we're introduced to a man named John. And the first words we hear him speaking are, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He then starts baptizing people when all of a sudden Jesus shows up. To put it simply, the kingdom of heaven is here. It looks like this man, Jesus, and he is asking you to turn from whatever other kingdoms you've been running after and to follow him. And so this morning, we're looking at the mission of Redeemer Fellowship, that we are a church seeking to share together in the life of Christ by loving God and loving our neighbor. And that shared life that we participate in together The story that our baptism relates to the world, it's the story of a new kingdom. A story of a new kingdom, one that is marked by both the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And so those of us who have repented or have entrusted ourselves to the king, we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God. In other words, we are both in and with Christ. We are both in and with Christ. And that reality, it serves as the foundation for who we are, both individually and corporately as a church, which is what our passage is wrestling with this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 6. And we're going to be working through verses 1 through 14 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can follow along through the insert in your bulletin, or you can take a look at the screen behind me, which the passage will be up on. And so the passage begins with the words, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And so what Paul is doing here is he's responding to a theological claim that he had just made. A theological claim that is one of the more encouraging and comforting statements in the entire New Testament. Look at chapter 5, verse 20 with me. It says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Another way of saying that word is that grace superabounded, is how some translators 
wrestle with that word. So really quickly, in Romans 5, the Apostle Paul is retelling the story of Israel, but he first goes back to Adam, the one in whom sin came into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all of humanity because all sinned. And then he then says in verse 14 of chapter 5, That death reigns from Adam to Moses. The point he's making is that Adam's sin, it took God's creation onto an entirely different trajectory. One that remade God's very good world into something that was now a dark and sinful shadow of its original intention. Can I reference back to the future for a minute? Can I do that? In back, I heard always. Who says always? In Back to the Future 2, Marty, which is Michael J. Fox's character, and Doc, they head into the future to save Marty's son. While Marty is in the future, he purchases a sports almanac, a magazine that has all the, the, the scores of every single sporting event throughout all of history. He buys this because he's hoping that when he gets back to the present to place a few bets, right? He wanted to make a little bit of money. No harm, no foul. The problem, this is where it gets nuts, is that the villain of the story, Biff, he learns about this plan. He steals the almanac and the time machine. And then he goes all the way back to 1955 to give the almanac to his younger self. And it's at this point that the trajectory of human history is changed and the train of time is completely derailed, resulting in a dark and alternate 1985. There's a beautiful scene in the movie that depicts this entire thing. Adam's sin, yep, Adam's sin derailed God's very good creation. And the result is a dark and alternate world where sin and death reign. Where sin and death reign, like they rule. They're they're in authority over what's happening in the world. But in the midst of this alternate kingdom, this alternate 1985, if you will, this darkness... God was working behind the scenes. Maybe you can even say undercover, considering he uses this nothing of a nation to accomplish his plan. And he begins by calling a people through this man, Abraham, a people who then found themselves enslaved in Egypt until God, through Moses, liberates them, takes them out to the desert, and provides them with a law, a standard to reflect to the world around them the goodness, the wonder, and the holiness of their creator. And as the law entered into the story, what it did, as we just read, is that it shined a spotlight on both the nature and the gravity of this thing called sin. The law shined a spotlight on the nature and gravity of this thing called sin. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. And this is where we hung out last week. My goal last week was to shine a spotlight on the nature and gravity of our sin. 
that we would come to grips with the reality that we are the ones responsible for the murder of the Christ, this Jesus whom we all crucified. But we didn't stay there. Because that's the thing about God's grace and his kingdom. It is little by little pushing back the darkness, establishing and fortifying itself. As it says in verse 20 of Romans chapter 5, that grace is abounding all the more so that grace might also reign. You guys tracking with what's going on right now? So that grace might also reign. And so now... Because of what Jesus has accomplished, there are two kingdoms reigning. You catch that? There are two kingdoms reigning. The kingdom of sin and death and the kingdom of God's grace. And through faith, we have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And so these are two kingdoms that are functioning in God's creation simultaneously. The kingdom of sin and death and the kingdom of God. All right? They're both here. And that's really the point. Those of us who have entrusted ourselves to Jesus, we don't live in that other kingdom anymore. We don't live there. And while the fire hose of God's grace is operating in full force in that kingdom of darkness, it's not our home. It's not our home. And so the Apostle Paul asked the question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And that phrase, continue in sin, is important because it sets up this argument of location. So we're going to get a little bit theological, we're going to get a little bit exegetical, and we're going to mess with grammar a little bit this morning. So I hope we're all up for the challenge. So New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, he says it like this, and I have a slide. The question is primarily about status. With behavior included but not the sole or main topic, of course, to remain in sin will mean to go on committing sin. But Paul is interested in where one is, first and foremost. It's like saying, shall we remain in France with the assumption that if one does one will continue to speak French. In other words, when Paul says, should we continue in sin, he is sarcastically asking, should we continue to take up residence in a place where we no longer live? Should we continue to take up residence in a place where we no longer live? Before we moved to Tom's River, we lived up in Sayreville. But that house on Upper Main Street, it doesn't belong to us anymore. I can't just walk through the front door, go into the refrigerator, and take a nap on the couch. I can't. Why? It's not my home. And that's why he responds to this question in verse 2, by no means, right? Look what it says. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 2, by no means. May it never be. Absolutely not. Why? You don't live there anymore. You don't live there anymore. You can't walk through the front door. You can't open up the refrigerator. If you do, you're operating in a world that you don't belong in. 
And when we operate in a world that doesn't belong to us or, or we don't belong in, there's going to be consequences to being there, right? If I go into my old house and lay on the couch, grab stuff out of the refrigerator, the cops are going to show up because that's breaking and entering. Am I right, Pete? Right, they'll show up. He's a cop. He knows. He then asks another question. Look at verses 3 through 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is where we see the mission of our church starting to rise up out of the text a little bit. So our baptism, it provides a visible representation of something that has happened in the spiritual and heavenly realms. We have been united to Christ, the Bible says, or brought into union with Christ, which means that if the Messiah, if the Christ is Jesus of Nazareth, the crucified and risen one, then belonging to the messianic people means being characterized or being marked by crucifixion and resurrection, by dying and rising. Right? So if that's who we belong, if that's where we live, if that's who we have been united to, then our lives, when we say we share together in the life of Christ by loving God and loving neighbor, that means our lives, as we share in the life of Christ, they look like the life of Christ, which is a life that is marked by what? The cross and the resurrection. Okay, let's keep going. And that union with Christ that we experience, and make no bones about it, it is an experience, okay? When we come to faith, when we entrust ourselves to Jesus, something actually happens to us, right? A change takes place in our lives. Our desires start to change. Our thinking starts to change, there's an experience that we possess, right? Our justification provides us with a sense of freedom and peace so that we can boldly enter into God's presence. Our sanctification, little by little, changes our desires and our affections so that sin becomes less and less appealing. Our adoption as sons and daughters of God, it provides us with both comfort and security. But all that stuff, it's driving towards something. We are united to Christ in order that, verse 4, the second half, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Okay, so check out what Paul is doing here. He's saying just as, so everything that happened to Jesus is going to happen or is happening to us. That's what being united to Christ means. That's what being in union with Jesus means. That's what we mean when we say that we share together in the life of Christ. When we talk about that, that sharing together in the life of Christ, what we mean is that we are striving together by faith to live in light of our new address, the kingdom of God our new address, the kingdom of God. And what that looks like is walking in newness of life, which is another way of saying living a life where we are loving God and loving neighbor. That's what walking in newness of life 
boils down to, right? Even Jesus says when, when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says, love God and love neighbor, right? And so all that to say, we have a new home and we have a new king. Where are we spending our days? The apostle Paul isn't finished though. And the reason why he isn't finished, because he gets it. He understands the appeal of that other kingdom, that domain of darkness that is still reigning. So he wants to further unpack this union with Christ, this participation we experience as his followers. Look what he says in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So N.T. Wright argues that this term, been united, it comes from a root which means grown together. He further argues that our union with Christ means that the existence of the Christian is, as it were, is intertwined with that of the Messiah, like two young trees whose trunks grow around one another. That's cool. That's really good. I'm going to read that again because I think it's that good. Okay? He argues that our union with Christ means that the existence of the Christian is, as it were, intertwined with that of the Messiah, like two young trees whose trunks grow around one another. In other words, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus becomes our identity. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus becomes our identity by faith. And so that means that our old identity or our old self has been put to death so that, with the purpose of, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. In other words, we don't live there anymore. It's not our home. Our new home is the kingdom of God, which is centered on the person of Jesus, the Messiah. We have a new home, and we have a new king. We have a new home, and we have a new king. But the thing is that our old home, it wasn't a home. It was a prison. That's why Paul says in verse 7 that the one who has died has been set free from sin. See, the problem, though, is that we don't see it that way. We often look back at our old home through these rose-colored glasses, forgetting the reality that there never was a white picket fence there. It just wasn't the reality. The domain of darkness, the kingdom of sin and death, it is a prison cell pawning itself off as an all-inclusive island getaway with a warden who wants nothing more than to see us destroyed. That's the reality of that old home, that old place, that other kingdom that simultaneously is existing alongside this new kingdom that's breaking in, the kingdom of God. Paul goes on to further explain. Look at verses 8 through 10. He says, Now, if we have died with Christ... We believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Because the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. 
And so he uses a conditional statement to further explain what it means to be united to Christ. So think of it like this. If we're on the path with Jesus, sharing together in his life, then we're going to experience everything he experienced. If we experience his death, then we'll also experience his resurrection. You see what he's setting up here? You see what he's doing? He is, he is, he is folding us in to the life of Christ. He's folding us in to the experiences of Jesus. He's folding us in to the realities of who Jesus is. So that everything that is true about Christ becomes true about us. That is good news, Redeemer Fellowship. Like that is, that's the central tenet of the gospel is our union with Christ. All the other stuff, our adoption, right? Us being made sons and daughters of God. Our justification, our being made right in the sight of God. Our sanctification, our being, our being made holy throughout our lives. Our glorification, where this train is heading. All of that, we have all that because we are united to Jesus. All right? Like, that's so important. Because everything that's true of Jesus is true of us by faith. Good news. He then lays out some facts about the Messiah. He said Christ was raised from the dead. Since he was raised, and so for all of you grammarians, I'm interpreting the participle being raised as a causal participle. Since he was, some of you are just like, I don't care, right? So <laughs> since he was raised, one, he will never die again. And two, death no longer has dominion. Since he was raised, he will never die again, and death no longer has dominion. In other words, Jesus' resurrection is the reason why death is losing its authority and its dominion. The kingdom of sin and death is on the run. The kingdom of sin and death is on the run. Why is this true? Verse 10 tells us, because Jesus' death was a one-time event. It's a one-time event. And on the cross, and this is key, on the cross, he submitted himself to the kingdom of sin and death. You guys, you guys hear that? On the cross, Jesus submitted himself to that other kingdom. And when he rose from the grave, that kingdom was dealt a fatal blow. And now the life that Jesus lives, he lives to God. In other words, he is now operating as the ruler of this new creation kingdom. And by faith, we get to share in that kingdom with him. Like, the, the irony is so cool, right? So, like, he submits himself to this kingdom of death, this kingdom of sin, and because of himself submitting to it, he now rules over it because that submission caused him to become the king of this other kingdom, the kingdom of God. He had to submit himself to the kingdom of death in order to be risen and ascend and seated at the right hand of the Father. That's the trajectory it had to take. And that's what verse 11 is getting at. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. When Paul says that, it's just another way of saying, believe the gospel. Consider yourselves dead to sin. Reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. 
Believe what is true about yourself. Believe that you no longer live in that other kingdom, but you now exist in the new creation kingdom of God. That's good news. Our address has been changed. We have been united to the king of that kingdom. Why? Because we've been united to him in both his death and his resurrection. And so we now share together in the life of Christ, a life that is marked by the love of the cross and the hope of the resurrection. I want to read, like, Ephesians just makes it clear, right? He just lays it out in Ephesians chapter 2. And I have a slide for this. I'm just going to read it. I'm just going to read the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2. Because I think this is like a beautiful summary statement of what we're talking about this morning. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince, that's royal language, of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. What that means is that, that as we lived in that kingdom, the trajectory of that kingdom, if you stay there, where it ends up is death, is wrath. Right? So to, 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 to live in the kingdom, in the domain of darkness, is, is like saying when, when the Titanic hits the iceberg, I'm going to stay on the boat. Okay? That's what it is. That's what it is. When the Titanic hit the iceberg, you could have either gotten off the boat. Now, I know there were not enough lifeboats. We all saw the movie. I get it. But the point is, is that you were either able to stay on the boat, which is a direct path to wrath, to death, to destruction, or you can get off the boat. But God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's our salvation story. We were in another kingdom. By faith, we have been transferred to a new kingdom where we now dwell. And so what we are called to do as a result of this is to, is, is to live in light of that new creation kingdom. Is to live in light of that new creation kingdom. And while all of that theology that might have felt a little complicated, it's really pretty simple. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And so Paul's doing this. Paul's looking out and he's seeing like, it's like, okay, you, you live in that kingdom. You live in this new creation kingdom. If that's true, if that's where you truly live, 
then stop submitting to the other kingdom. You, you guys catch that? If you live there, stop going into their refrigerator. Stop taking a nap on their couch. You don't live there anymore. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. We have a new home and we have a new king. Stop submitting yourself to the old because Jesus already did that. Right, that's the reality. When, when the kingdom of sin and death started its reign back in Genesis 3, it did require submission, and Jesus submitted to it so that we wouldn't have to. So if theology isn't practical, right, then it's a waste of time. Right? If we're just sitting here discussing like theological concepts for fun, but not actually allowing it to change our lives, it is an utter waste of time, right? It's worthless. You shouldn't do it. Go watch a good movie instead if that's all you're doing, right? So Paul issues a command. Check out what it says, verses 12 through 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members, your, your body, right, your body parts, do not present your members as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members, your body parts, to God as instruments for righteousness. So, right, Paul issues a command. Do not use your body, your arms, your legs, hands, feet, your mind, your eyes, your tongue as weapons of evil. There's a subtle military illusion here. That word instruments, it could also mean weapons. And so we've, we've talked about this before, right? If we truly do belong to this new creation kingdom, if we have a new home with a new king, then picking up the weapons of the enemy to fight, even if it's on behalf of God, it's not only counterintuitive, but it ironically ends up serving the kingdom of sin and death. Right? Did you catch what I just said? If we pick up the weapons of the enemy, even if it's used to serve God, we are actually serving the devil. We're serving the ruler and the power um, and the princes of the power of the air. Right? That's what we're doing when we do that. And so... When we talked about sharing together in the life of Christ, we also talked about how we do that, by loving God and loving neighbor. All of this theology, our union with Christ, the death of our old selves, the movement from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son, all of it begins at the cross, which means, which means that the sort of love we are called to embody is the sort of love that was displayed by Jesus when he laid his life down on the cross. And so when it says in Romans chapter 6, verse, uh, verse 13, the second half, of, I'll just read all of 13, right? He says, do not present your members to sin as weapons for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as weapons for righteousness. So, so the weapons we pick up, the tools that are in our hands, as the prophet says, they're, they're turning, you know, weapons of war into, into, you know, like gardening tools, right? Like that's, that's what it means. It means for us as followers of Jesus to, to no longer participate in the kingdom of this world, 
by using its weaponry, its, its manipulation, its, all of its stuff to accomplish whatever it is we're trying to accomplish, even if we think we're accomplishing something for God. The weapons that we're called to pick up, they're in the shape of a cross. It's death, it's humility, it's peacemaking, it's mercy, it's compassion. It's submitting ourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's what it means to live in light of our new address, our new kingdom. And it's, it's counterintuitive because it is so far from what the world teaches us to do. And it's so far from what even some Christian thinkers and, and preachers have taught us to do throughout our years. That, 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 that the ends justify the means, but it never does in the kingdom of God. Because if there is a desire to, to use the weapons of the enemy to make ourselves safe or comfortable or, or protect some sort of thing that we're trying to protect, there's nothing in the Bible that tells us to do that. No, Jesus says, I bid you come and die. And so there's never a promise in Scripture on this side of glory that we're promised comfort, peace, security, and all the things that we have here in the West. It's just not promised to us. And so to maintain those things, if we start picking up the weapons of the enemy in order to do so, oh, we're missing something big. We're missing something big. Because as I track through the Sermon on the Mount, I don't see anything in there. And that's a kingdom manifesto. That is Jesus saying, hey, you're in my kingdom. This is how you live. And so if we read that and we come away thinking that we need to pick up the tools of the enemy in order to accomplish the purposes of God or the purposes that we think are of God, Jesus is just saying like, oh no, that's not. Now, where there's sin, grace abounds. Where we fumble the ball, Jesus still calls us back to himself and has nothing but compassion for us. Because we do have this temptation. We, we do remember that old kingdom and we're like, oh yeah, but like, it's so expedient. It's so easy. It'll make all this stuff go away. I can start yelling at school boards and screaming at them with all my might to accomplish what I think should be accomplished. And Jesus is saying, I bid you come and die. I bid you come and die. The meek will inherit the earth. What? Yeah. That's scripture. I'm not making this up. That's what the Bible teaches us. And it's good news. Why? Why is it good news? Because how did we come to faith? How did we enter into this new kingdom? Was it by being beat over the head? Or was it the kindness of God that led us into repentance? The kindness of God. And so if it's the kindness of God that leads us into repentance then maybe it's also the kindness of God that'll lead everyone else into repentance. And who are, who's called to embody that kindness? Those who are in union with Christ. Those are, who are united to his death and resurrection, right? We are called to be a people who embody the humility and love of the cross and the hope of the resurrection. And we do that how we live how we engage with our neighbors, how we engage with our kids, how we engage with our spouses, how we engage with people across the aisle, how we engage with, with people who have monstrously different views than we do. 
I'd never won an argument by yelling. And I grew up in a home that yells because this is what Italians we do. We think that's how you win fights. You just yell. Well, some Italians, not all Italians. I come from the Italian heritage where we yell like we, right? It don't work. It don't work. You might get your way for a minute by shutting somebody up, but hearts aren't changing. The kindness of God leads to repentance. And so when Jesus died, his eyes were set on the glory of the Father and the good of his creation. It was a rescue mission to wrestle away from the powers and authorities, the evil one, the prince of the power of the air, the authority that was usurped and stolen in the Garden of Eden, an authority that was entrusted to us, to all of humanity. And the way he went about that rescue mission was otherworldly. It was otherworldly. Not with fists, spears, firepower, manipulation, finances, political expediency, but with humility, grace, love, and ultimately death. I don't know if you remember the story. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Troops show up to arrest him. Peter pulls out his sword. He's ready to go to the mattresses on this guy, right? Cuts off his ear, and Jesus is like, whoa, 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 too far, bro. That's not what we're doing. That's not what we're doing. He miraculously puts the ear back on the man, and I think Peter got the message. Oh, this kingdom's different. We're not overthrowing governments. We're not picking up swords, but rather God is in the process of turning those swords into gardening tools. Verse 14 says that sin will have no dominion over us because we are not under law but under grace. In other words, we are no longer to identify with the generation of Adam, the generation of Moses, but rather with the generation of Christ. We have a new home. And we have a new king. That home and that king is now operating in the midst of the old. That's where it's happening. These kingdom outposts, these these gatherings of God's people, as it pushes back the darkness. Lost my spot. And Jesus is pleading with us through the lips of the Apostle Paul, to fix our eyes on what is new, to keep our feet planted in the soil of new creation, to share together in the life of Christ by loving God and loving neighbor. Present your members as instruments for righteousness. Pick up the weapons of God. Pick up your cross and follow Jesus. I was texting back and forth with Noah Lang this week, and I love how he put it. He said, what the eyes see, the heart loves, and what the heart loves, the feet pursue. So to change our actions, we have to change our affections, which is done by changing our attention. And I'm going to say it again because I think it's that good. What the eyes see, the heart loves, and what the heart loves, the feet pursue. So to change our actions, we have to change our affections, which is done by changing our attention. 
In other words, we have a new home and we have a new king. Look to the king. Learn how the cross was both the way he lived his life and how he saved ours. The cross was the way he lived his life and how he saved ours. And then go and do likewise. This is what we mean when we say that we are seeking to share together in the life of Christ by loving God and loving neighbor. And that love, it is in the shape of a cross and it carries with it the hope of the resurrection because that is the love and hope that rescued us. Walk in Christ. Reside in his kingdom. Walk with him through the valley and perform his good works. Live in light of your new address. That's what we're talking about. That's what marks us as a church. That's what we care most about. That is what deeply resonates with us. We want to be a people who live in light of our new address, the kingdom of heaven, which is the person and work of Jesus. That's where we are, in union with him, forgiven, justified, adopted as his family, sanctified, glorified, seated in the heavenly places like as we speak, we're there. That's a mystery. Oh, but it's good news, Redeemer Fellowship. And you know what's so cool? I actually believe that we've been embodying that because people come to our church and they say that they experience God's grace here, that they experience his love here, that the people here welcome them with open arms, that, that bruised reeds and, 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 and smoldering wicks are not being snuffed out. And my prayer is that that remains to be the case and that we would fight, that we would fight to maintain that here because that's the stuff that matters. People need to catch a glimpse of what God is like and that's what God is like, caring for those who have been sinned against, welcoming them into his family. And we are the hands and feet, the members who can be used as the weapons in God's hand to accomplish that. Weapons that are in the shape of a cross, that are in the shape of farm tools. Farm tools bring life. Not death. They bring life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord God, I thank you for our union with Christ, that we have been united to your son Jesus that what is true of him is now true of us by faith. By faith, by grace through faith, Lord. And Lord, I thank you that where this story is heading is toward resurrection ultimately. That one day we will be raised up bodily and we will see you face to face. Father, in the meantime, I beg of you, Lord, that you would pour your spirit out upon this place, that we would be a people marked by the cross, marked by the humility of your son, Jesus, Lord, that we would share together in the life of Christ, loving you and loving our neighbors. Help us to do that, God. Help us to do that. Father, it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.